Let's bow in prayer, please. Well, Father, what an amazing love it is that uh, you, a holy and a righteous God, lacking nothing, uh, desired to have fellowship renewed with us. We admit our inability to totally grasp your plan, Father, but we accept it with great joy. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Thank you, Lord, for your word that instructs us and guides us in all truth. And now as we apply ourselves to the hearing of the word, Lord, we just pray that we would have as our focus the Lord Jesus Christ and living lives to please him. Thank you for the transformation of life that goes on at salvation. And thank you for these remarkable truths upon which we've been thinking. Stir our hearts now and challenge our thinking as we study the word. In Jesus' name we pray, with thanksgiving, amen. Well, this morning I invite you to take your Bibles and open them back to Genesis. We are in a Genesis series, and within that Genesis series, as you know by now, we're dealing with some issues, cultural and social in nature, that the Word of God addresses by pointing us back to Genesis. Some of these topics are a little bit difficult. And this morning, we deal with a topic that is quite emotional in the sense of if you've ever been through a marriage that has fallen apart and you've dealt with divorce, you know the, the devastation of it. You know the reason that God says in Malachi that I hate divorce. I think anybody who's ever been in a divorce situation would agree with God on that one. There's not one good thing about a divorce. How it all ends up there because of all the sinful things. And yet it is a reality in our world today. And, and in fact, there's, it was a reality in the day when Jesus lived and when the Apostle Paul lived and we need to recognize that we're not the only people group who struggled in the area of marriage and holding marriages sacred, and that marriages have crumbled in a lot of cultures. There have been a lot of times in the past when marriage and family and home have been highly impacted by a, a decadent society. We tend to crack a lot of jokes about marriage. We tend to uh, goof around with it, but we'll see this morning... Back in Genesis chapter 2, what a sacred thing it is. There's notes nearby, and if it's helpful to you, follow along. It's not offensive to me at all if you prefer to just listen and study your, your Bible there on your lap. There are a lot of statistics about marriage and a lot of information. I found it interesting, uh, some on a lighter note, uh, that, um, for example, in Kentucky... They say that there's still a state law on the book that a wife can't move furniture in the house without her husband's permission. You know, husbands, you save yourself a lot of grief. You just don't care about the furniture, where it is. Um, but they say men in Kentucky have other restrictions, too. He can't legally marry his wife's grandmother. Evidently, that's still on the books. Um, one of dear Abby's most unusual letters, she said, came from... One wife who evidently didn't understand her husband. The letter said, My husband burns the hair out of his nose with a lighted match, and he thinks I'm crazy because I voted for Goldwater. That one's from a few years back. But um, speaking of politics, 
It does make for some strange bedfellows in marriage. Ann Landers again claims that one of her most unusual problems from readers concerned a man who hid his wife's dentures so that she couldn't go out and vote for a Democrat. There's a strategy for you. The mystery author Agatha Christie said that an archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. And I understand she was married to an archaeologist, so she should know. There's a story from back in colonial days that a Boston sea captain named Kemble was sentenced to spend two hours in the stocks in downtown Boston for kissing his wife in public on a Sunday. That happened to be the day that he returned from three years away at sea. Marriage is uh, something that all of us can relate to. We all have some level of understanding about marriage. Anybody who's been married understands that it's not necessarily as easy as you think it's going to be when you're going into it. We have in our culture today, of course, the problem that a lot of marriages are struggling to survive. We live in a society that does not so much have or hold a high view of marriage And we find that to be true in some of the statistics out there. They say now that nearly 60% of all marriages are ending in divorce. Over half of all marriages are ending in divorce. That comes from the National Center for Health and Statistics. When we look at the church and how it compares with the world a guy named Barna who does a lot of Christian research. You can, it's kind of an interesting website. It's www.barna.org. He said that among born-again Christians, 35% have experienced divorce. What's so interesting about that is that the statistic, that figure is identical to the outcome among married adults who are not born again, about 35%. In our culture, it's become very popular to cohabit and to live together before marriage. We're finding that the statistics on that are very serious and that couples who live together prior to getting married are more likely to have marriages that end in divorce than those who do not live together before marriage. You do not help yourself statistically if you plan to be married by living together ahead of time. Our world would say, go ahead. See if you're compatible. That's evidently not the way to build a strong marriage. They say that after five to seven years, only 21% of cohabiting couples are still together. That would mean that about 80% of cohabiting couples will break up without getting married, or if they get married, they will get divorced. We recognize, and if you've experienced a divorce in your home, there No one needs to tell you how difficult it is and how generationally it impacts us as well. They say that if an individual enters a marriage and both of their parents have experienced divorce, or if their parents were divorced, that is the bride and the groom, if both of them each had divorced parents when they were growing up, 
that the odds are three times greater that their marriage will end in a divorce than those who grow up in what we would call an intact home. When we open our Bibles, we see that God has a plan for marriage. And one of the things we recognize in the Word of God is that when people came to Jesus, and we're going to end up in Matthew if we have time today. If not, we'll continue next Sunday. When, when the Pharisees came to Jesus one day in Matthew chapter 19, and, and they wanted to ask him, on what basis could a man divorce his wife? That's kind of a good question, isn't it? Have you ever thought about the questions you would ask Jesus if you got to see him? It makes for kind of an interesting Bible study to just kind of go through the Gospels and identify the questions that people ask Jesus. You'll find that most of the questions that you really want to know the answers to, people have already asked Jesus and the answers are written down for us. Remember, for example, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Remember what he asked? A great question. How can I be sure and have eternal life? It's a great question. In Matthew 19, the question is recorded for us. On what basis can a man divorce his wife? And they quote out of Deuteronomy, or they kind of misquote Deuteronomy 24 and and some technicalities there and how Moses allowed for divorce and recorded the rules for divorce there. But what sends us to Genesis is that in Matthew 19, when they ask Jesus these questions, Jesus doesn't go back and examine what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 under the law. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And he said, wait a minute, what did God intend when people get married to begin with? So let's do a study this morning out of our Bibles and let's begin it. We will not finish it. I already have practiced this message at 8.30 this morning and I already know I can't get through it. And uh, that there's a part two next week, okay? And uh, so uh, you can expect that. But if you want to follow along, you'll notice in your notes that we're going to see that God has one plan for marriage. There's not multiple plans. There's one plan. We're going to see in Genesis 2 that there's three parts to that plan of what makes up a marriage. We're going to acknowledge that, that Bible students basically can be partitioned in four different camps on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But as we study the Scripture, I think that you'll be able to see that it's pretty evident from the study of Scripture that even though God has one plan for marriage and it's a permanent plan, that there are exceptions stated in the Scripture, not made up by men, but acknowledged and allowed by God in certain sinful situations. God allows for divorce and hence remarriage. There are only two breakdowns for that. Let's begin in Genesis 2, 22 to 24. Let's pick it up halfway through verse 20, where God says, But for Adam, Genesis 2, 20, the second part, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. We've been talking about this for a number of weeks, and these verses should be getting pretty familiar to you. We recognize that as Adam is alone in the garden, there's not a suitable helper. So verse 21, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame." 
It's interesting, and when we get to Matthew 19, you'll see how Jesus went right to this passage to define what marriage is. We've already used it last week as our text, defining the fact that when God created marriage and when God made man and recognized that it was not good for the man to be alone, that he didn't create another man for him, he created a woman. He didn't create some other creature or an animal for him, he created a woman. And we see that this is pointed to, even from the New Testament, back to the very beginning as an actual template for what God designed marriage to be. And the first point that we see here is that God really just has one plan for marriage. And it is this. It's not very complicated. It's not very technical. It is that when God designed marriage, he designed it for one man and for one woman. And he designed for them to come together to create a new home. You know, God's really practical, isn't he? He's pretty smart. That's kind of a silly thing to say about God, isn't it? our God of infinite wisdom and omniscience. God, you're pretty smart. But I can't help but recognize how wise God is and how he puts things together in ways that just work really well. For example, and you've heard me say this before, aren't you glad that that he put all the water on the earth that he did and not like Mountain Dew? Think about, and I love Mountain Dew, but... You know, brushing your teeth with Mountain Dew, washing the dishes with Mountain Dew, going swimming in Mountain Dew. Just doesn't work. But water is just perfect. You ever notice that? You get something in your eye, man, you can rinse your eye out. You get thirsty and drink, water satisfies and replenishes. Need to brush your teeth? Water it is. Your little kid skins his knee? Use water to wash it off with a little bit of soap and rinse it with water. God just does things right. And so it is with marriage. He didn't design it to be for like two men. It doesn't work. You can't even procreate. He didn't design it for like a bunch of young girls to get together when they're 16 and say, let's, uh, we're such good friends, let's get together, get pregnant, and let's all just raise our children together. That's not God's design. God's design is for a man and a woman to come together, create a new home, and have children. That's his plan. That's his design. And it totally makes sense, doesn't it? Especially when that man and that woman are focused on Christ, they're born again, they're new creations in Christ. You've got a man who wants to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. He wants to protect his home, build a strong refuge. You've got a a wife who with her, in, in the gender differences that we talked about, who wants to create a comfortable home and how God just designed a mama just perfectly to take care of babies. And and it just works, doesn't it? One man, one woman. That's one plan. We notice, though, in verse 24, that as God presents the template for marriage in the Garden of Eden, that his one plan for marriage, and and I, I keep hammering on this because I just can't get over the fact that we have to sit around and have debates on what constitutes a marriage. It's right there. It's clear. Don't let the culture and the society redefine for us what God gave as a perfectly excellent plan. The three parts to the plan are not that complicated either, and they make good sense. There are three basic ingredients or dynamics to this. Look at verse 24 in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. 
The first dynamic or the first ingredient to a marriage or is the establishment of a new and the establishment of a new home is the the concept of leaving. There is a separation, you see, from the parent. A boy is supposed to grow up as a young man to establish a new home, and he's to do that by leaving home. I thought I might pick up an amen or two out there on that one. <laughs> to leave home is God's plan for a young man. And I understand that there's, it's just almost pandemic, pandemic and even sociologists... Sociologists and psychologists have even redefined adolescence to go up almost to 30 now. And part of that is because kids aren't leaving home. It's God's plan when you reach adulthood to leave home. What do you do? You're to separate from your parents. There is now the establishing of a new home, a new unit. I want you to recognize, though, that this does not mean that we do not honor our parents. We don't leave and separate with a bad attitude. Even in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, God clearly defined right there for us that we are to honor our father and our mother. You young men that might be in the audience, especially if you have a godly father, a father that loves you and has tried to raise you well, even if he doesn't know the Lord. You need to honor him. And as you separate from home and head out, you need to use your father as a point of reference. You need to gain from him wisdom. If you don't have a father, maybe you're marrying a girl that has a good father and you should engage and connect with him and build a relationship with him. Honor him by gleaning from him the wisdom of his life so that as you separate and build this new home, you can learn from your father who's gone on before you. What a blessing to have a father to, to gain wisdom from. Everything from fixing the toilet to fixing the roof to what kind of car to buy. You say, oh, my dad can't do any of that. No, but he's learned how to deal with some of that. He can help you. You can at least learn how not to do some things. And if you don't have a father like that, connect with some of the older men in the church. That you would honor those with age is so important. But God's design is that you would leave home. The second part of it is then, look at verse 24. For this reason, what reason? That the man and the woman were designed for each other. For this reason, you then leave home. Okay, You don't get a wife and then stay at home. It's not God's plan. You say, well, is it a sin if I have to move back home? Well, it might be the result of your bad planning or foolishness. I know there's extenuating circumstances at a lot of different levels. So no, it's not a sin to have to move back home. While we were building our house, we moved in with my mother-in-law for six months. Eighteen months later, we moved out into our new home. She was really glad to have us move out of her home. And we're nice people. Why? Because it's not God's plan. So yes, things like that can happen, but you don't build into your system, okay? Don't build into the system, we're going to live with mom and dad. I would suggest that you're not ready to be married if you're going to build into the plan we've got to move in with mom and dad. Okay? Until you're ready to leave, you're not ready to marry. The second part is because part two has a lot to do with part one. Okay? The leaving will help you with part two, which is the cleaving. 
If you don't leave, it's going to be a lot harder to cleave because you've got two different families living in the same space instead of two separate families. He says in verse 24, For this reason a man will leave his father and they will be, in the NIV translates it, be united to his wife. Come together. The King James uses the word cleave. Cleave together. This is that there is a uniting of two separate lives into one. It's the establishing of a new identity. Some years ago, I built into my my wedding ceremony, into part of the vows, I added the phrase that taking his name, when the woman takes her vows, she has to say when when I do a wedding, and taking your name and putting aside all others. Why? Because it's an emphasis of the new identity of this home. You don't hold on to the identity of the past. There's a whole new identity. I am not a fan of hyphenated last names. The whole reason is right here. God says, you are now a new home. You say, well, is it a sin to do that? I wouldn't say it's a sin. I don't think the Bible really addresses it. It's just this preacher's opinion that you are to leave and create this whole new identity by cleaving to your wife. You don't hold on to the things of the past. This is now a new home, a new identity. It's partly why up here on the platform we usually have a table during weddings. And in a traditional wedding, we'll often have two candles that are lit on the outside. You can picture it, can't you? And a bigger candle in the middle. And sometimes they might have their mommies come up and and light the candle. Or the dads will come up and light the candles or whatever. And at some point during the ceremony, I'll step aside so that the audience can see better. And so the bride and groom can move up to the table. And I have a little part of the ceremony that talks about these two candles, separate and distinct, will now come together and form one light. And then extinguishing their candles, the bride and the groom, now symbolize this coming together and this new identity. That's not a physical coming together. We're in front of everybody up here. They're still here. He's in his tuxedo. She's in her gown. The light comes together. But I really believe that part of the sanctity and the sacredness of the moment is that in God's eyes, they have become united in a spiritual sense. They are now identified as one with this idea of a cleaving coming together. It's more than physical. It's one reason why I tell brides and grooms at rehearsal often, I'll say, and I get kind of serious with them, especially if they're a lot younger. The younger they are, the more trouble they have with this. And sometimes people, when they're nervous, they just start to giggle and stuff. And I say, there's no laughing aloud on the platform at this wedding. This is like unbelievably serious moment where she who walked down the aisle in her beautiful gown and he who waited with anticipation as two separate lives, when they come together now and they walk out together, everything has changed. They have been put together by God And they are now to go have a whole new identity. They're to cleave. It consummates itself, of course, with the uniting of one flesh. And he puts that right in the verse. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and then the last phrase, and they will become one flesh. He even adds the detail. We're going to probably have one whole message on why we wear clothes and why, why it matters But verse 25 here 
as Adam and Eve come together in this first marriage ceremony, you might say, as God presents one woman for one man right there, and together they are, and it says the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And in this pre-fall, this time of no sin in the garden, the time of innocence, what a beautiful thing God intended. And the third dynamic, the third ingredient to marriage, which ultimately leads to the obedience to fill the earth with children, is that they become one flesh. There's that word that I used last week, that composite unity. I used a plywood as an illustration. Plywood is one, one piece of about a dozen layers at different thin layers put together, six, seven, eight ply, glued together. You can't rip it apart. Why? It's not meant to be separated. It's meant to come together. Sometimes water will get in it and soak the glue and the plywood will separate. We've got to rip some off the roof or something or off the floorboards where the toilet has ruined the bathroom floor and we rip it up. And like I said last week, you don't say to your son, hey, gather up this plywood, put it in a truck. We're going to use that to build a doghouse. No, it's all tore up, man. It's messed. It's messed up. Because it came apart. Plywood's only good if it's still together. It's a unity. It's one. And in the physical union, husband and wife come together. This speaks specifically of the physical union. We won't take time to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is exhorting a man not to get involved in extramarital, extramarital sexual involvement with a prostitute or having an illicit relationship. And one of the things he points out there, you can look it up later, it's, it's almost hard to understand what he's talking about, but he says, don't you know that when you come together that you are one flesh? Even though you do it with somebody who's not your wife and it's an illicit relationship, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that clear back in Genesis, when God says you come together as one, it is a very sacred thing. This is a part of marriage that is meant to be sacred and special. Listen, we have a huge problem in our culture. Huge problem. And it's a huge problem in the church thinking that the physical relationship between a man and a woman is just something that is arbitrary. And you send some kid off to college and our culture totally accepts the fact that and now, in fact, you can sign up for co-ed dorm rooms where you can share your room with your girlfriend or a girl that's not a room. Co-ed bathroom's been around forever. That's like the dumbest idea in the world. It's like, actually, the older I get, the more I realize that like bringing 25,000 19 to 25-year-olds and bringing them in in like a six-square-block area and living like that, that's like, whoever thought of that, they just don't get it. That's not the best way to teach people science and stuff. It might be the best way to teach them certain parts of biology, but not math. And so they come together. And we have this problem in our culture of young people who are engaging in the physical aspect and what it is, it's taking, and it's why throughout Scripture you have condemned over and over and over again to abstain from this. That it's not good for a man to touch a woman who's not his wife, Paul told Timothy. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as a matter of fact, and, and the reason it's so serious goes back to Genesis. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When God designed marriage, he put three parts to it. Leaving home, cleaving, that is creating this new identity, and then uniting on the physical level. 
You don't do that with anybody else, only your wife or your husband. That's part of God's formula. So the reason, especially you young people, I want to talk to you right now. The reason this matters so much is that God has a formula for marriage. He ordained marriage. He, he made up this system that really works. You know, he didn't put Mountain Dew in the hot water heater. He, used, he designed marriage to work correctly. And when you take one of the three ingredients of that marriage and you pull it out of context and you abuse it over here, you are tampering with the sanctity of the marriage ceremony and the, and the sanctity of a husband and wife coming together. You say, oh, Pastor Van, you're just an old fogey. Maybe I am. I just believe the Bible and it works and I can see why he said it. First Thessalonians 4 It's such a clear verse. It's such a great verse for young people, for old people too, but especially young, unmarried, junior high on up especially. It is God's will. Look what he says. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, set apart from sin, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is what? that is holy and honorable. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he designed a marriage and a man and a woman, and that dynamic, the physical dynamic, is part of the ingredients of a God-ordained marriage, and to use that part outside of marriage makes it unholy. We now have a culture that celebrates this. We go to movies and we watch them do it on the screen for entertainment. We send our kids to secular universities and there's no restraint. It's horrible what's going on at that age group. And what's happening is, it's like like the worst thing you could do to prepare for marriage. Because God designed that part to be part of the sanctity and the sacredness of marriage. And when you come up here and you come in here, you are identifying on this platform, I am leaving home today. When I get back from my honeymoon, not going back home to mom and dad, there's now a new address. And lots of times we put it on the back of the wedding program, right? The bride and groom, thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for all the gifts you've given us. And our new address is, and, and some of you brides, You found great delight, didn't you, in working that over and then your new address, your new name and your new address, that whole new idea, it's special, it's God's way. And then the candlelight and unifying, you're in unity and you leave here and now is the time to go to your bed to fulfill and to complete God's design. How special, how precious that is. Our young people, we need to challenge you to learn to control your body. Look what he says. In a way that is holy and honorable, verse 5 then, not in passionate lust, like whom? Like the heathen do. Is he talking about like bones in the nose and loincloths, those kind of heathen? Ooh, headhunter, you know, cannibal heathen? No, he's talking about anybody, the way people who don't know Christ do. Just anybody outside of Christ. And what do they do? You know what they do. They do it all they can, as soon as they can, with whoever they can. And God says, that's not the way Christian young people do. That's not my design. It's not God's will. And the reason is because it is 
sacredly designed to complete the marriage plan. We're going to stop right there for this morning because now we're going to go to the New Testament and we're going to see how Jesus handled a question about, okay, if marriage is sacred, then why is there divorce? And if there's a divorce, when is it allowed? But this is the foundation of the Genesis 2 passage, the template for marriage. One plan, one man, one woman, three parts to the plan, leaving, cleaving, and uniting physically. That's what God's design is for marriage. Let's bow in prayer, please. Before I close in prayer, I've been challenging particularly the young people a little bit with this aspect of maintaining sexual purity for marriage. It's not an old-fashioned concept at all. It's a biblical concept, and it is as relevant today as it's ever been. It could be that you've allowed yourself through the passion of, and weakness of your own flesh and through the pattern of the world to be pressed into that. I really want to challenge you to recognize that's not God's way to confess and forsake that sin and to commit yourself to moral purity and celibacy until God brings your marriage partner to you. It'll be one of the most difficult things you'll ever do in this culture, but you can do it by God's grace and you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. For you married people who are here, just a reminder that that when God gave you your wife or gave you your husband, regardless of how it ended up there, and we'll talk more about that if you're divorced and remarried, we'll, we'll deal with some of those issues next week. But know this, it is God's will for you to be married to who you are now, to stay married. Whether you got in it through good decisions or not, now that you're married, it's God's will for you to be married Cleave and unite to one another and remind yourself of the sanctity and beauty of marriage. If you've been struggling with the green grass on the other side of the fence, you need to knock it off. Focus on your home. Focus on God's plan for you right now. As difficult as it might be, His grace is sufficient. Some of you may need to deal with the sin of the past and once and for all forsake it as sin, the decisions that you've made. And we thank God for his grace and the new beginnings that he's given. I challenge you to deal with some of these issues. And so, Father, we humble our hearts today. We're thankful for your plan of marriage and the home and what a great thing it is. And by design, one man, one woman, leaving their homes, coming together to identify with one another in a whole new home, at a whole new level, and uniting even physically both the the beauty, the joy, and the passion of the marriage bed, and then the children that it produces, and what a beautiful design and plan you've given us. Forgive us for tampering with it. Forgive us for not taking it seriously. Help our young people to commit to purity, Lord, and to walk in the truth. Our boys and girls, help us to raise them up to walk in the truth. And may the moms and dads here model what it is to have a united home. Thank you for your grace, though, Lord. We are prone to fail. We are full of bad decisions in our lives. Thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.